Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Welcome to The Takeaway. I'm Janae Pierre, in for Melissa Harris-Perry. Good to have you with us. Today, we're taking a few looks back at some of our favorite segments, and we'll have some new stuff later in the show as well. But first, let's start with a conversation Melissa had recently that brought us all into the wild. Males will kill cubs that aren't their own. Even meeting its own father for the first time is risky. But thankfully, the mother is there for protection. Oh, I hate to throw a monkey wrench into the works, but all this dogma about killer male animals and protective female animals is only part of the picture. It's time we stop pigeonholing the females of the animal kingdom into these old-fashioned, outdated, and overall wrong-headed ideas about animal behavior. But don't just take it from me. You need to hear the actual scientific facts straight from the horse's mouth. So here to set the record straight is Lucy Cook, zoologist and author of the book titled... Today's episode of The Takeaway contains discussions of biology and physiology from across the animal kingdom and contains language that some audiences may find inappropriate for young listeners. Okay, disclaimer made. Lucy Cook is author of the book... Bitch on the Female of the Species. And I started by asking why she chose that title. It's the word for some female animals, so that's uh, appropriate in that way. But also, you know, it's a derogatory term for females, isn't it? It's a swear word. But many of the females that are featured in my book, their behavior might cause derogatory names to be called of them. But in actual fact, in most cases, they're actually just being assiduously maternal. So I guess in some ways I'm trying to reclaim the word. Beneath the cover is a truly fascinating text. Lucy makes very clear that what you learned in biology class about male and female animals, well, that might not have been exactly true. The idea that that females are wired for chastity and males are wired for promiscuity goes all the way back to Darwin, as do many of these stereotypes. Darwin was, you know, an extraordinary scientist and, and his theory of evolution by natural selection is one of the greatest theories there is in science. But he was also a man of his time. And so when he came to look at the differences that he perceived between the sexes, he branded the female of the species in the shape of a Victorian housewife, um, because that was what was seemly at the time. And quite frankly, I think the man had had withstood enough controversy in one lifetime for for having proposed the theory of evolution, right? He'd really upset the church. So he probably didn't want to kind of ruffle feathers too much by giving females too much agency either. But because Darwin said it, these ideas hung around for a very long time and scientists that followed in his wake suffered from a chronic case of confirmation bias or they just thought that females weren't interesting and so it's taken you know a revolution in the last few decades really to, to redefine the female of the species and one of the kind of key findings one of the early findings was about female sexual behavior and this idea that that females are just seeking chastity So it turns out that females are just as sexually strategic as males. And that strategy very often 
includes mating with multiple males. And that might be if you're a lioness because you want to confuse paternity. It might be because you're a songbird because you want to ensure the best genes for your offspring. But pretty much in every case where we've, we've now found that females are mating with multiple males routinely, it, it's because they're being good mothers and they're wanting the best for their offspring. Maybe talk a little bit about those promiscuous songbirds who somehow managed to continue to um, have a clutch of fertilized eggs even after their male partners had had vasectomies given to them by the scientists. Yes, so this was one of the first inklings that, that female songbirds were promiscuous, right? And, you know, female songbirds you know, or songbirds, you know, they, they nest near houses. We all sort of see, you know, a male sing his heart out and attract a female and then together they build a nest. And they seem to be the very picture of monogamy. But that's us projecting our ideas onto them. There was a, the, the first inkling that the females were, were maybe not as monogamous as it seemed was in this experiment where it was about pest control, actually. And, and um, <laughs> there was a bunch of, of birds that were, were given vasectomies. Um, and yet the females still managed to um, have fertilized eggs. And so that sort of suggested that, that, that the vasectomized male, they were mating with, with, with males that, that weren't expected. But it was actually um, a scientist by the name of Patricia Goati, uh, who's this extraordinary, amazing, one of the really fantastic trailblazing scientist that I that I interviewed for the book. She's now in her, her 70s and, and um, has had an extraordinary career of debunking many of these perceived myths. And she she thought to herself, hmm, I don't think that, you know, songbirds are as, uh, as monogamous as they seem. So she was the first person to use in the 90, early 1980s to use DNA fingerprinting and, and do a DNA test on a clutch of eggs. And sure enough, she found that they had, you know, a clutch of eggs had several fathers. Now, her study subject was the uh, Eastern Bluebird, you know, star of zippity doo So, you know, it was never going to go down particularly well that she's causing, calling her a Jezebel, right? But, but even Patricia Goati was shocked by how her data was received by the um, academic establishment, who basically turned around to her and said, well, the only reason, the only way that, that could be possible is if the animals, if the birds were raped. And she's like, well, you know, hang on a second here, but that's actually physically impossible because... In order for the female to be impregnated, the male has to balance precariously on her back. They have cloacas. Males don't have penises. And so they have to line up these cloacas, these holes. And the transfer of sperm happens very quickly. But if the female's not interested at any stage, she can just fly off. So it actually then took for birds to have radio trackers attached to them to prove that the females were actually flying outside of their territory and, and soliciting sex with, with, with other partners. And, and, you know, this story is very typical of, of the fight that the, the scientists who are overturning these old stereotypes have had to face in order to have their data accepted. So we, I think we cannot go any further without talking about the sage grouse. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and 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 the the fembot sage grouse and I must say even though you told us at the beginning of the text not to anthropomorphize I did absolutely underline and then take a photo of and then share with my husband that the study clearly showed that the male who was most uh, sort of flocked around by the female sage grouses wasn't just sort of the one that puffed up the most, but the one who knew how to listen and respond to the, the cues of the female. 
I got to say, I know we're not supposed to anthropomorphize, but the idea that the sage grouse is a story about not just being the big guy on campus, but the best listener really made me very happy. I'm, I'm pleased to hear it because it made me happy too when I discovered it. Yeah. I mean, sage grouse are just extraordinary birds. I mean, they have the most hilarious courtship and in the animal kingdom, I think. I mean, it's just absolutely ludicrous. The males have got this um, inflatable throat sack. That they gulp down loads of air and then they, they inflate it. And there's these sort of two kind of like fleshy sort of sacks that pop forth. They look a bit like sort of you know, shop dummy breasts. Do you know what I mean? These sort of like weird sort of like <laughs> nippleless bosoms that sort of pop forth and then they slap them together and they make this doink, doink, doink sound. And so they're sort of beatboxing and, and flapping their sacks together and in this kind of ridiculous dance to get the female's attention. And and what sort of makes it more hilarious is the females look like they really couldn't be interested whatsoever. They're just sort of desultory, kind of like pecking at the ground. And the poor guys are there flapping their sacks and beatboxing as best as they could to be noticed. And um, the sort of received wis wisdom was, you know, the flashiest guy wins, right? Gail Patricelli, who's at um, UC Davis, she managed to sort of break into this black box by the most ingenious way. She created her own fembot. She she created a, a, a robot sage grouse out of um, a taxidermy kit, um, a robot she bought online and a pair of Spanx. Don't ask me exactly for the <laughs> recipe. I can't tell you. I love that Spanx like, are part of it. <laughs> I know, exactly. They've got many uses, <laughs> apparently. But anyway, so, so she, she, and she found that that basically in the case of the sage grouse and also bowerbirds, which she's also discovered, that the male, it's not just about being the flashiest, loudest male. It's also about there's a dialogue going on. And if, and if the male doesn't respond to and listen to the cues that the female's giving him, he's just going to frighten her off. She's not going to go for it. So, you know, it's, it's heartening, isn't it, to hear that, that for sage grouse and humans alike, it's, uh, it's important to, to have a lover that's uh, not just uh, the, the, sort of the flashiest guy in the room, but one that, that, that the successful one is the one that actually listens. Of course, not all the stories you tell are edifying or even sort of titillating in, in some of the ways that we've talked about. Um, you tell the story of social hierarchy among baboons, stories of infanticide in multiple parts of the particularly um, mammal kingdom. And if you've watched Meerkat Manor, then you know about this. But if you haven't, the meerkats, they're, they're not the nicest moms and grandmoms that you ever met. Maybe walk us through one or two of those as well. Yeah, so I think there's this sort of idea, isn't there, that, that males are wired for competition and, and females aren't. But, you know, in the animal kingdom, we're now discovering females are just as competitive as males. And they can be really, really brutal with that as well. So, you know, and, and you mentioned the meerkat. That's a great example because, I mean, meerkats, you know, everybody knows them as these lovable, cute, fluffy little creatures. But actually, a recent survey of a thousand mammals found that the meerkat is actually the most murderous mammal on the planet. And it's actually the female of the species that's the murderous one because she's basically meerkat society is predicated on extreme competition between females who, who, who will sort of readily kill and each kill each other's babies given the chance right because they just want to be the only one that breeds but you have a dominant female who suppresses that by preventing any of the females from breeding if they do she'll kill their babies 
and evict them from the from the den and then they're they're allowed to come back on the condition that they'll wet nurse their murderous mothers um babies instead because that it's normally your sister or your mother that's that's likely to be your competitor in this case and you find that in in many 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 mammal systems females also inhabit their own hierarchy you know tv shows love to show us the sort of dominance fights of males you know red stags fighting each other with their giant horns or chimpanzees fighting one another for dominance, but females also inhabit their own hierarchy. And interestingly, often these hierarchies, you mentioned baboons, they are more stable than the male uh, hierarchies because they they follow the female line and they have a huge amount of power. So, you know, in many primates, there may be a, a you know male an alpha male, and there may be male tussles over dominance. But you know, the females are actually the ones that are leading the group movements because they are the sort of the core of the group. And it's really important where you are in that hierarchy because Jean Altman founded this incredibly long-standing study on baboons, and she found that female baboons that are that are lucky enough to be born into the upper classes, they are, you know, far more um, reproductively successful than those that are in the in the lower echelons because they, you know, they, they get first dibs at food, they have a kind of protection racket for their young. And those that are born into the lower classes, the females are, are much more likely to, to lose their, their infants. And, and even in some primate species, you know, the female mothers will, will also suffer from um, postnatal depression. You know, so it's, it's some of the sort of similarities are really extraordinary, actually. But the impact of class on motherhood in primates is, is really interesting. I know you want more stories from Lucy Cook, but we have to take a quick break and we'll be right back. It's The Takeaway. One former NPR editor's grievances are reverberating far beyond a Substack essay. He claims wokeness is ruining the place. That marginalized people are storming the barricades and dictating that this story happens and this story gets killed and we're going to use this language and not use that language. That's not what I saw. On this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Takeaway from WNYC and PRX in collaboration with GBH News in Boston. We've been revisiting a conversation MHP had with Lucy Cook about the animal kingdom and all that we thought we knew about the behavior of females and males in the wild. Enjoy. Now, new scientific discoveries show that female animals are not solely passive, docile, selfless creatures. But painting a new picture of the ladies of nature has been a tough task within scientific communities. The authority gap has a lot to do with it. I mean, you know, female scientists, you know, will will complain vociferously about, you know, not being taken as seriously and having to work twice as hard to have their data accepted. And so, you know, not all of the revelations in my book are have been found by female scientists by any means. It, men can be feminist scientists just as much as females can. It is extraordinary that it is taking so long for what we now understand to be true to become common knowledge. And, and you know, and that's why I felt the book, the book was so important to write because I kept coming across things that amazed even me. And I realized that even my own cultural bias was that I made assumptions about 
you know, how patriarchy must be the norm in the animal kingdom. And one one has these ideas. And, and it's just that my book, hopefully, is about overturning those and, and bringing new research to the forefront and to dispel these old myths once and for all. In her book, Lucy offers many examples from nature where non-human animals change sex and move across what we would call in humans gender norms. So I asked her whether there's something we can learn from that. My book looks at two forms of bias, really. The first was sexist bias, and that originated in the Victorian era. And the second is really heteronormative bias that I think we're only really beginning to grapple with now and realize that we viewed the animal kingdom through these heteronormative goggles for so long. And first of all, I should say that um, we don't think of animals as having gender. Gender is a, is a, is a, is a human construct, right? So when I when I talk about females in the book, I'm talking about biological sex, which which is traditionally defined by what gonads you have, whether your gonads produce sperm or eggs. Right. Putting an animal in what in one of those two binary boxes becomes extremely difficult. You'll have all sorts of mixtures, which which becomes very, very difficult. And, And most most evident, of course, are in the in the animals that routinely change sex and which there are many, in particular fish. Um, there are about 500 species of, of fish that, that change sex, sometimes some of them as much as several times a day, which is uh, which is amazing. Right. But um, it, it, one that's been studied really heavily is the anemone fish um, from Finding Nemo. We're all familiar with the, the clownfish or anemone fish. And Justin Rhodes, who studies anemone fish in Ohio, he's found that what happens is, you know, in an anemone, you have a monogamous male and female generally. Right. And then you have a couple of um, immature males. And what will happen is if the female's dominant and, and if she's removed and she gets eaten or, you know, dies or whatever, then the male that was her partner will transition into being a female. And one of the immature males will mature and become her sexual partner, which, by the way, would make the um, plot, the biologically accurate um, version of Finding Nemo. Um, a very different film in which... <laughs> yes, very different. Little little Nemo loses his mom and then goes on a big adventure and is reunited with his dad at the end of the film would be would be very different. But what's interesting about this is we have this sort of this transition from male to female that happens in the, in the fish. And, and Justin has found that it happens first in the brain, right? So that the, the fish changes its behavior almost immediately and starts behaving like a female and is actually perceived as a female by other fish. But the gonads take up to a, a year to catch up. So biological sex is, is male, but the behavior is female. A female is not just an egg and, and a male is not just a sperm. There's a whole lot more going on there, you know, and that sex, sexuality, sex behavior and sexual identity, these, these can all be sort of independent of one another. Or certainly in the animal kingdom, in some of the animals that have been studied so far, that's what we found. What for you is the big at-stake takeaway from all of these extraordinary, diverse stories that so challenge, I think, what our maybe received wisdom is? What do you want people to walk away with after engaging your book? The thing that astounded me the most was this discovery that that males and females are really more alike than they are different. Sex itself and its attributes are incredibly plastic. And, you know, they bend according to evolution's whim. I mean, you have 
female moles that have ovo testes. Their, their gonads are half ovary, half testy because that's what suits them for their life underground. You know, you have female albatross that will hook up with another female in order to raise the, the chicks because there are no males about and they have a full loving relationship. You, you know, you have females that are aggressive, you have females that are dominant, you have this extraordinary plasticity. And the fact that we are we're basically made from the same genes, same bodies and same brains I think that should make us have a lot more em empathy for one another. And to see variation for what it is, is that it's a necessary part of evolution. And if we don't have variation, we won't evolve. You have a little prediction about the Y chromosome going on here? <laughs> yeah. Evolution is a series of botched jobs. It just makes the best situation in that moment. You know, the differentiation uh, of the sexes is, is a great example of that because, you know, we sort of think of genetically a female's XX and a male's XY. And, but actually in that these are two sort of separate linear paths, but they're not, they're completely enmeshed. And, and the Y chromosome itself, you think all the genes for being a male were on the Y, right? They're not, they're scattered all over the, the genome. And the most astonishing thing to me was that the genes that make a female and make a male, they're actually the same 60 genes, right? And they're all in this sort of meshed up thing. So, so you, you, that's how you end up with all this glorious variation. But the Y chromosome itself, you know, is, is shrinking, you know, and, and it's got a shelf life. And it's, uh, you know, so, so in theory, males who, who depend on a Y chromosome could cease to exist. But the thing about sex is that it, it will constantly reinvent itself. There'll be another botched job. I mean, the, the platypus, for example, has five X's and five Y's. And there's a, there's a spiny rat in Japan that has already lost its Y chromosome, but it's found another way of, of differentiating the sexes. So, as you say, it's not this perfect system. It's we're basically, you know, other than the trigger for for that starts off these this process towards being a male or a female, the genes that actually do that job, they're the same in it. They're, they're the same. We're made of the same genes. We have the same brains, the same bodies. And I think that's, you know, that was an extraordinary thing to discover, which I didn't think was going to be the conclusion of my book. Well, I, I just want to know, what year is it that the boys are going away, though? Because, I mean, I did find that interesting. <laughs> I, you know, I, you know, I didn't know I was going to be asked that question. I don't know the answer. No, I know. It's like 45 million it's, years or something. It's perfectly Is it 45? Yeah, okay. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Lucy Cook, zoologist and author of Bitch on the Female of the Species. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for such great questions. It was really fun. Thank you. Thank you.